We are thrilled to have uh, a surprise guest with us today, Larry Silverstein. Uh, You, Larry says that's enough, but I'll let, give, give me a second. Um, you, you might have heard that Larry rebuilt the World Trade Center. Uh, he did a few other things, uh, many other things, one of which is founding the Shack Real Estate Institute uh, about uh, 1967. And uh, one of the things... Uh, Larry uh, was saying today uh, about Sam, uh, which Sam you may like, is he's a kid compared to me. <laughs> uh, so with that, Larry just wanted to say a few words, and then we'll have uh, Mark Norman and Sam Zell come up. Thanks, Robert. So is this on? Is this, can you hear me? Can you hear? Yeah, okay. Um, this crowd is as noisy and as boisterous as it's ever been. Because I've been at these lunches now for I don't know how many years, a lot of years, and, I, and it's just amazing to come back and hear the excitement in the room. So uh, I really came because number one, I've always come. Number two, I said to myself, back, I think it was 1990, there was a guy by the name of Sam Zell who gave some advice, and that was, stay alive to 95. <laughs> I figured if I came today, I'd hear him say, stay alive to 25. <laughs> but seriously, it's a, it's a joy and a half to be here, to listen to Sam, who's a guy I revere, and I think everybody else does too. Um, so it's... It's time for me to get the hell out of here, sit down and listen. But I also want to say that it's a joy and a half to be next, be here with the Dean, Mark Norman, who's come, who's, who's done a terrific job since coming to NYU from someplace out west. Do I have to mention the name? <laughs> but he has the Clark and Larry Silverstein chair in real estate development, and it's and I'm I'm just so thrilled to see what's happened to this institute, how it's grown, how it's developed, the quality of it, the diversity of it, the number of courses that are given each year. It's it's a thrill and a half. So all I could say is, I'm going to sit down and listen. So let me hand hand this back to you, Robin. Great. With that, let me invite. Mark and Sam to come on up. You got it? Thank you, Larry. All right. I hope our mics are on. Oh, our mics are on. Um, Thank you, uh, Larry, uh, mentor, founder of the school, um, inspiration. Um, it, it's an amazing day, uh, truly. I mean, to see all of you here and to have so many people um, come to support us, our students, uh, the industry, um, and Sam Zell. Uh, <laughs> um, I am not gonna make a long introduction because that would take 45 minutes, but I'm just gonna say very quickly, 
um, on the Forbes 100 greatest living business minds, um, founder and chairman of Equity Group Investments, all sectors, um, chairman of a range of public companies, um, and anybody that writes a book that's title is um, Am I Being Subtle? Gives you a very good indication of their talents and their personality. Um, in addition, um, I came a year ago, actually to the day, um, from this conference um, from University of Michigan. So go blue, um, still. Um, but um, his career in real estate, um, his uh, dedication um, to the educational institutions uh, that he supports uh, to entrepreneurship is, is amazing. So he's also always supported us at this conference and come to speak. Um, so I just want to first give a round of applause. Um, and then maybe stick on Michigan for a second, because we're two Michigan guys for the moment. Um, because um, I think what's important for our students is you've dedicated yourself to entrepreneurship, and it started early, like in college early. Um, so I'm wondering if we could hear a little bit about, about that and maybe some of the lessons that come from, from that early entrepreneurship, especially around real estate. Well, I think that uh, I always uh, was opportunity-focused. Um, I always looked at things and tried to figure out how to profit from it, how to make better from it. Um, I always felt that entrepreneurship uh, was a skill level, kind of like, uh, is it an art or a science? Um, I got involved in the development of entrepreneurship educational programs in 1979 when I sat with the dean of the University of Michigan Business School and I told him that I had just read his curriculum for 1980. And it was a book about this thick and you know, listed all the courses and stuff like that. And uh, I said to him, I said, you know what's really weird? You've got a 30 or 40 page book. You've got 120 courses. And I couldn't find the word entrepreneurship anywhere in the material. There wasn't a course in entrepreneurship. There wasn't a definition of entrepreneurship. There wasn't a goal of entrepreneurship. And yet, I felt that entrepreneurship was the core, certainly the core of the real estate business. For sure. Um, you know, the real estate business is uh, it's a very unique business. It's a business full of uh, extraordinary people, risk takers, uh, people who, uh, uh, can see around the corner, can plan on something on day one that's going to come to fruition on day 10. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, someone who understands that takes risk to get reward, and someone who can constantly ask the question, am I getting paid for the risk? So uh, it led me to uh, all kinds of entrepreneurial activities from, uh, you know, I was 12 years old and uh, uh, my parents uh, sent me to Hebrew school. And the Hebrew school was in Chicago and we had moved to Highland Park, which is a suburb. And, you know, if you're a 12-year-old kid, uh, among other things, you're curious. And, uh, you know, I had all this time where I could walk the streets and see what was going on. And in the process, uh, I discovered that there were uh, magazine stands underneath the rail tracks. And the magazine stands carried magazines that weren't carried in Highland Park. And in 1953, uh, a new magazine came out called Playboy. <laughs> well, you're 12. Huh? You're, you're still 12 years old? Yeah. OK, just checking. <laughs> and uh, you know, I looked at Playboy. And I looked again. <laughs> and um, it was 50 cents. So I bought it. And I got on the train to go home and I read every page. Um, and I showed it to a friend of mine. A friend of mine's eyes got wide. And he looked at it and he said, wow. He said, could I buy it? Well, I knew that I could buy another copy if I went back to the magazine stand. So I said, okay, three bucks. <laughs> he said, fine. <laughs> Paid me $3, and I sold a copy. Well, the next day I went to school, and somebody else came up to me and said, hey, I saw what you sold to Roger. I wonder if I could get one. So I basically began my first entrepreneurial career <laughs> importing and exporting Playboy to the pristine suburbs. That's great. But of course your parents were like, he really loves Hebrew school. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't share my new business with my parents. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I don't know, from that point on, uh, my whole you know, life was, you know, I, I was an academic only to what was necessary. Uh, University of Michigan took me in, bless them. <laughs> um, but certainly they didn't take me in because of my academic achievements. Um, and then when I was a junior in college, and then I started a whole bunch of other businesses, and uh, they were all entrepreneurial activities where there was a margin. 
And I kind of learned about what margin meant and that margin was the lifeblood of an entrepreneur. And uh, I went over to see a friend of mine one night and he explained to me that he lived in this house that he rented and that the, the night before the guy who owned the house had come over and told him that he had bought the house next door and that as soon as school was over, he was going to knock down both houses and build a 15-unit apartment building. And uh, I said to my friend, gee, we're students. We understand what this is all about. Why don't we go pitch them and we'll manage the apartments and we'll do the maintenance in return for a free apartment each. And much to my shock and surprise, uh, the owners thought that was a reasonable idea. And so they gave us the building to manage. And it turned out that being a student and understanding students was a, a, a big asset. And the result was that we did very well, and then we got another building and another building and another building. And uh, you know, by the time uh, we gra graduated from law school, uh, we had a, a viable ongoing business where we not only managed apartments, but we bought them and redid them and uh, was in the real estate business. Wow. And <laughs> Many times thereafter, people would come up to me and say, unbelievable what you did. And I would look at them and say, I really didn't understand what I did. And more important, I didn't understand what I couldn't do. And when you start talking about an entrepreneur, maybe you start with saying that an entrepreneur is someone who specializes in doing things that he, didn't know, he or she didn't know he couldn't do. Mm. And if you don't know you can't do it, then guess what? You can do it. <laughs> well, I think another thing, and this resonates with our first panel, um, was of course we were talking about financing and REITs. Um, but the takeaway was really, if you understand where the culture is going and what people want, that, that's one of the most important things. And, and I think that, that demonstrates that. Um, so if we um, flash forward, um, what do people want, what do people need? <laughs> now, um, because we're seeing a lot of headwinds, right? And I think for, for many in this room, they seem unprecedented. Um, you've seen and navigated many crises. Um, so I'm wondering, right, spotting those opportunities then and exploiting them and understanding where the value was, um, with our current uncertainties, um, do you see opportunities, ways forward in certain sectors? Well. I guess I would start by saying that in almost every speech or fireside chat that I've done, 
at the end, there's a question and answer period. And somebody in the back, usually a young person, gets up and says, you know, there were great opportunities when you started. But now, things are different. And now, everything is tougher. And there's much less opportunity. And I respond to them by saying, I think the opportunity is always there. It takes the right kind of people uh, to understand what the circumstances are and how to take advantage of them. You know, the, the REIT law was passed in 1958. And it was the last thing that President Eisenhower did. Hmm. And for from 1958 to 1991, the REIT world grew to $7 billion, which, considering what our capital markets are, was a very small incremental growth. Uh, and then people began to, by virtue of, you know, mother is the, you know, necessity is the greatest, you know, effort of, of, of anything. Uh, the savings and loans went broke, insurance companies went broke, and all of a sudden, the public arena seemed like a very attractive place. And there were a number of people who saw that opportunity and created what today is an over a trillion dollar industry, uh, which we've done since 1990. So in the first 30 years, they created seven, seven trillion or seven billion. And in the last 30 years, they created a trillion. That's, that's called being entrepreneurial. That's called taking advantage. And people, and particularly entrepreneurial people, seeing the opportunity and jumping on it and making it happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of some of those other headwinds, um, so when we were here last year, um, the federal funds rate was half a point. I'm sorry? The federal funds rate was half a point. Right. Now it's 5%. Right. Um, seems like there's a lot less opportunity. But, um, you know, to your point about sort of the REIT markets and, you know, alternative investments and, and other vehicles, um, I'm wondering if you see um, opportunities in, in that, right? Which, must, which is definitely paying for the banks and definitely paying for refinancing. Um, but are there, do you see opportunities for those sort of non-bank um, entities? Well, I guess I start by saying that competition uh, is always a, a very important part or element of opportunity. Somehow or other, while we were all going to school, uh, somebody told us, how wonderful competition was. And I really believe that competition is wonderful, particularly for you. Me, I'd like a monopoly. <laughs> if I couldn't have a monopoly, I'd like an oligopoly. <laughs> but the pure idea of, of you know, uh, uh, unmitigated competition leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. 
When the Fed fund rate is a half a point, that means money is very available. Money is very cheap. You could even call money free. That means that all kinds of schmucks can come in and compete with me. <laughs> I don't think that's such a terrific deal. When Volcker was, you know, taking inflation and putting an end to it in 1981, and the Fed fund rate was 21 and a half, wow. uh, it was really tough. But the guys and girls who could surmount that challenge had extraordinary rates of return. So I think that in all situations, certainly the cost of capital is very relevant. But I don't think the cost of capital precludes the ability to succeed. Yeah. And I think that you need to adjust what you're doing. You need to adjust you know, the, 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 the steps you take. You need to adjust the amount of risk you take. And you have to continually look in the mirror and say, am I doing it right? Yeah. And it's just, a, I think, a good lesson for, for anybody, let's say born before the uh, 70s. Um, my parents were very happy with their 11% mortgage when sure. I was a kid. I remember that. And, um, and I think we forget that we've had times of high inflation, of high interest rates, um, and have come through those those moments, um, and you've certainly come through uh, your share, whether it be well, savings and loan or anything else. There were more than one time where I was scared to death. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think being scared to death is one of the characteristics that defines success. Anybody who's not afraid, anybody who believes that it's easy, uh, isn't likely to produce the kinds of exponential results. Yeah. Um, and if we think about geographies, I mean, you're in Chicago, we're here in New York, um, right? Our, our sort of, you know, let's say six or so coastal and uh, Midwestern markets, um, we're hearing some bad news, um, some headwinds. Um, people talk up, right? Austin and Nashville and, and the other places, um, people in, my current university even, you know, have termed this doom loop um, scenario. Um, but we also see some, right, some opportunities. Tourism is back here in New York. Um, and so I'm wondering sort of your thoughts on the sort of coastal, because you're obviously also nationwide um, and talking to people internationally. Um, sort of what's, what's your feeling about sort of our our traditional biggest markets um, and the kind of up-and-coming market, what we used to call second-tier and third-tier cities. Yeah. Uh, people ask me all the time, uh, what markets are you investing in? Where are the best opportunities? And my answer is, is pretty consistent, and that is I've never bought markets. Hmm. I've never decided gee, uh, northern Maine is terrific, uh, or Miami is where I got to go. I've always responded 
to specific opportunities. And you can have fabulous opportunities in horrible places, and you can have fabulous opportunities in attractive places. In the early 70s, um, I acquired a nickname called the Grave Dancer, where I spent a lot of time buying up distressed property. And I was on a panel like this, and somebody raised their hand and said, you know, well, you've just come through all this period. I had, at that time, between 73 and 78, had bought, uh, I don't know, three or four billion dollars worth of real estate. A lot of it a dollar down and a hope certificate. Huh. <laughs> and so the guy looked at me and he said, where did you do the best? And nobody had ever asked me that question. And I kind of sat there and I thought about it and I answered his question, Toledo, Ohio. And the guy looked at me and he said, Toledo, Ohio? <laughs> you know, the rust belt of the United States, the armpit of the nation, <laughs> uh, this horrible place uh, on the, whatever, uh, which one of the Great Lakes it's on. Yeah, you. Um, and I said, yeah. And he said, I, I don't understand. And I said, it's very simple. For all of the reasons that I've just outlined, or you've outlined, about the characteristics of Toledo, also meant there wasn't an insurance company in America who was willing to underwrite a loan in Toledo, Ohio. So there was no competition. So where there's no competition, margins are extremely favorable. So. Toledo produced for us extraordinary results, not because it was a growing market, not because it was Austin, Texas, or someplace like that. Yeah. It was because there was no competition. Mm. And in the same manner, during the 70s and the 80s, we bought a lot of stuff in Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, never held it for more than a couple of years, hopefully catching the right opportunity. But there was so much competition hmm. that there was no stability. And in the end, as an investor, what you're looking for is stability. You're looking for rate of return. I mean, New York has a terrific uh, track record of producing results uh, in real estate. Why? Because it's tough to build in New York. It's tough to get land in New York. There are serious barriers to entry. So if you're able to put it together, the net result of which is that you're likely to get an, 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 a, a superior rate of return. Yeah, so that seems like a compliment to Larry Silverstein. It is, <laughs> it is. I mean, I had an opportunity to buy World Trade Center before Larry did. Uh, I chose not to play uh, for a lot of reasons, among them being that I thought New York was uh, 
They, they thought that World Trade Center was a hometown play, and that only somebody who was truly skilled in what New York was all about could be able to convert that into a profitable result, as you did. And my hat's off to you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we have a lot of office here in New York. Um, there's been a lot of talk about um, the future of the office, what's happening with the office, and um, you know, um, one of the um, things that we've seen and that you know we've heard that is a kind of class A, class A plus, is doing really well. Um, most of our office workers and um, office operators are not right class A. Um, and the kinds of businesses that go into those offices um, you know, don't need all of those amenities. Maybe not everybody needs the beer tap and the greeter. Um, and so I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are on those class B properties. Right? Not everything can be class A. We're going to need the class B, um, but there's worry about that, that part of the sector. I wouldn't want to be an owner of a lot of Class B office space. Uh, although I will tell you that I think that all of this discussion about work from home is basically a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I haven't been able to figure out how to motivate by modem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how uh, a young person uh, who wants to be recognized, uh, who wants to, you know, be rewarded for superior effort, can do so if the person that's supposed to make that judgment doesn't see them at work. Yeah. Uh, on the first day of the lockdown of COVID. Uh, I was the only person in my office. Wow. Six months later, everybody is in my office and has been for over two years. Uh, I can't substitute the benefit of being able to interface with my coworkers. I can't substitute the assessment of risk uh, mm by using a Zoom. I don't know whether any of you have you know, been part of a board meeting run by Zoom, but I can tell you there's an enormous difference between a Zoom board meeting and one in person. And the Zoom board meeting is, uh, is, is, in, is a board meeting where everybody sits and listens to presentations and a, a live one is where discussion occurs, decisions are made, and risks are assessed. Yeah. So I, I believe that the current uh, office situation will change. Uh, I was on a panel with uh, Owen Thomas, who's head of Boston Properties recently, and he points out that east of the Mississippi River, uh, something like 80, 80, 85% of all the office space, A and B, is used. Hmm. 
west of the Mississippi River, uh, there's still a, an enormous amount of work from home. I'd love to see the statistics on all of the layoffs that we've all been following in the newspaper to find out what percentage of the people who have been laid off are work from home mm -hmm. and what percentage of them are people who come to the office. I suggest that if you're a work from home person and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to assess uh, what I think would be a, uh, an appropriate rift, uh, top of my list are the people who I don't see. Right. Top of my list are the people who don't come to work. Uh, can you be as productive in pajamas as you are in a suit? In person. I, I, I question that. Yeah. Uh, can you be as productive if you've got three little kids running around uh, versus working in an office with uh, coworkers? Right. I question that. Yeah. And I think it'll take some time, but I think that, you know, uh, certainly one of the greatest lies in the world is that people working from home are as productive as people who are in the office. Mm. Um, actually, on one of the earlier panels, I think just the panel just before lunch, um, there was also this um, sort of um, question and discussion about mentorship, too, uh, which I imagine is also an important part about being in the office, um, to have kind of a, you know, also a generational sort of continuity, um, people that have seen certain things and um, can convey that information. I don't think there's any question about it. I think that, uh, you know, how do you develop people? People don't get born with skills. They get developed skills. And you can't develop those skills long distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a pretty good sense today from our panels about um, the U.S. markets. I think one thing that we haven't talked about is all the things um, happening internationally that are, may affect the U.S. market. Um, China, Taiwan, uh, Israel, France. Um, I'm wondering if those um, crises that we're seeing um, in other parts of the world are affecting the way you think about your investments um, here abroad or even your investors um, that, that might be yeah. abroad. Much less so than 10 years ago. I think that real estate was much more connected 10 years ago and 15 years ago, and more, much more rep, 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 repetitive in nature than it is today. Um, France, I mean Paris, uh, work from home doesn't even, you know, is, an, is a non-factor. Uh, London, different story. Mm. Uh, so it, the, the international world of real estate is having much less of an impact on the U.S. market uh, than it did 10 and 20 years ago. Huh. That's interesting. And what do you think are some of the reasons for that change? Is that the capital that's well, flowing in that's changed? Uh, or just 
I think that uh, probably at the top of my list is fiat currencies. In other words, slowly but surely over the last 30 or 40 years, we've gone from currencies that are pegged to definitive assets to fiat currencies. As those fiat currencies uh, become more prevalent, confidence in them erodes. And so consequently, I think that and, and real estate, because they can't move it, right. is confidence. Mm. And so I think that there's less confidence in the real estate world as, as a store of asset valuation today than there was 10 and 15 years ago. Huh. Um, and so it, it really, I mean, it, it's almost counterintuitive to think yeah. in, in some ways, right? That's correct. Huh. Um, and do you think then that means that we're in some ways insulated from some of the larger for at least in the real estate markets? Well, I, I guess another way of saying it is that 20 years ago, the similarity between the US market and other markets around the world was much closer oh. than it is today. And whereas 20 years ago, when I started in the international arena, um, the lessons learned in the United States were very transferable. Not so much today. Got it. Um, so domestically, um, I read in the paper that um, there's some people um, from Congress and the Senate that actually came down to Wall Street um, to talk about the debt ceiling and some of the issues around that. Um, and I think, I can't remember the date, maybe it's June is our kind of deadline for the debt limit. Um, do you see that as um, becoming an issue um, and having an effect on what right, people are saying is an economy well, on the verge of a recession? Isn't, isn't the debt issue extraordinarily relevant? I mean, just think about the fact that we've added what, $8 trillion to the debt level of the United States in the last five years? I, I can't figure out how we're going to pay that back. Yeah. I can't figure out how we're going to rebalance our economy uh, to reflect the fact that we've created uh, just an enormous amount of debt in a very short period of time. And so, I mean, we'll come to that limit. Um, well, I mean, we're we're heading, you know, we're heading into the box canyon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and would you say that there's, I mean, is there anything to be done to prepare for a potential um, default? Um, buy gold. <laughs> buy gold. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You heard it here first. <laughs> um, I know that we're running a little short on time, um, but I did want to get um, a, a question about technology as well, because that's also a big issue. Um, and um, I did ask ChatGPT what Sam Zell um, thinks about ChatGPT. 
Um, didn't have a good answer. Um, it, it's actually kind of long, but it did say that you might be interested because you have a history of entrepreneurship and <laughs> that you've been involved in, in technology-related uh, companies. So I'm just wondering your sense of AI and um, how that might um, sort of affect you know, investments going forward or you know, people are you know, talking about how it affects employment um, and, and even you know, many white-collar jobs in addition to the blue-collar jobs. I guess what I would say to you is that when I was in high school, um, if we had asked a group of people, what was it going to be like in 2020? I think they would have answered that, well, we would have commuted to work in our helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that our life would be, you know, extraordinarily different than it is today. Um, that technology would, quote unquote, rule the world. Yeah. I don't doubt that technology will ultimately rule the world. But I venture to guess that it's a lot further down the pike than current wisdom would suggest. Yeah. It's like, you know, four or five years ago, all you read about were driverless cars. Have you seen one? <laughs> yes, haven't. but they have a driver behind the wheel. Yeah, you got a driver behind <laughs> the wheel. I mean, I mean, in the same manner, uh, do I think AI is going to be a major factor? Of course I do. Yeah. Uh, when? And in what manner, I think remains to be seen. I think there's a, 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 a human nature to reach conclusions quickly. Mm. And history says it's a much slower process. Yeah. And I think having a sense of balance and timing of what can and will happen uh, separates the men from the boys. Yeah. I actually read that um, Back to the, the Future, Back to the Future was about six years ago. Um, and, and even when I was a kid, I think we were supposed to be living on the moon by now. So yeah, so yeah <laughs> you are definitely right. Um, so I, I know people like to ask you for predictions. Uh, I'm trying to stay away from from predictions and predictive, um, because I think also on a panel somebody said, um, everybody's an economist these days. Yes. Um, but what do you think um, prospective sellers should be thinking about in this, in this current real estate market? Um, and maybe even in the near term, right? Because now, um, right, with, with things that have happened with the banks and maybe the Fed slowing down on its um, interest rate rises, um, do you think this is a moment of opportunity? Um. I think every moment is a moment of opportunity. I think one of the things that people don't give enough focus to is every time you're a seller, you're also a buyer. Hmm. So since it's a 
a circle. Uh, I think you gotta keep looking at the next arc and making judgments accordingly. Stepping out of the arc uh, is a dangerous game to play because if you're out of the loop, uh, you miss, the opportunity lost is significant. Right, right, great. Um, well, I'm gonna thank Sam Zell for being with us today. Um, amazing to have you with us. Thank you. Um, really appreciate it. Really fun. Yeah. Okay.